This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Excited. I don't know what's going to happen today. Let me just say that out the gate. Uh, I don't know whether we're having our guest or not. Uh, it's one of those kinds of mornings, but I'm thrilled, thrilled, thrilled to be here with you this morning. I am Shannon Penrod, and I'm going to be with you live for the next hour. Today is the 23rd of September, 2021. We are still doing the show live from different places around the world, and I'm live from a back room in my house. Uh, so there you go. My camera's a little cattywampus today. There we go. Uh, sitting between the two doors. That's that's what I do. Uh, but excited to be with all of you. And when I say all of you, I hope you guys know um, we welcome anybody who has an interest in being here. This show is meant to be informational and inspirational for the entire autism community. And when I say autism community, I want to be clear that that for me starts with the beating heart of, of that community is individuals who are on the autism spectrum, right? Of course. But then we also include in that community everyone who loves those individuals, that we feel like we are a diverse group of people and everybody has different wants and needs and questions and concerns because we're people and we're not all the same, right? Um, but the one thing that we have in common is that we believe that and know in our hearts that people on the autism spectrum are valued members of our society, that we do not need to fix them at all, but they have a right to make progress. They have a right to be heard in whatever way they need to be heard. They have a right to employment, to love who they love, right? Um, and those of you who are united in that theme, we welcome you to join us here so that we can make progress. Whether that progress is for yourself or someone that you love, doesn't matter to us in terms of you being a part of this tribe. It matters to us in terms of what do you need. So we make the show interactive. We want to hear from you. We want to know your thoughts, your feelings, your questions, your concerns. There are lots of ways to interact. We're live right now on YouTube. We're live on Facebook. We're live on Twitter. We're, I don't believe that we're live on our homepage right now because I think there's a problem. Again, um, we're working on it. But, <laughs> you know. It's Thursday. It's Thursday in 2021. What else is new? Uh, so if you're watching, uh, give us a shout right now and tell us where you're watching from so that we know you're there. You can interact on YouTube, Twitter, 
or um, Facebook, and it will automatically show up here on my screen. You can also interact on our homepage, autism-live.com. There's a chat at the bottom. Uh, Unfortunately, that chat is not interactive, also on my Christmas list, for that to be interactive. But um, I can see what you write, and if you want me to get back to you, you have to include a way to get back to you, right? Usually, we talk back to you here, but um, that might be changing in the future. I just don't know. There are things happening. You know what I'm saying? Um, anyway, uh, we hope that you will, will interact, that you will have questions for us, that you will be a part of this uh, community. Sometimes that means just hanging back and watching and listening and hearing what other people ask. I always say, if you have a question, don't be afraid to ask because your question might be an answer to someone else who didn't even know what question to ask, Right. Um, so that's a possibility and, but you serve yourself and your loved ones when you ask a question, but you also serve the entire community. I have said for years, I'm a mom of an individual who was diagnosed with autism when he was two and a half and that I stopped being a mind reader when that happened. So you can't assume that I know what you need. You have to tell me. All right. Uh, the thing I say is I gave up mind reading to be a mom of an individual on the spectrum. Uh, but that's not even true. I was never a mind reader. So um, in any case, uh, we have lots of experts that we invite to be on the show. And that's a big thrill for me. You know, when my son was first diagnosed, I became aware of the fact that there were a million and 18 things that I didn't know about my child and what he was going through. And I wanted to know as many of them as I could find the time in waking hours. I really wanted to do the Edgar Casey thing where I could sleep on a, on a, a book and have it just show up in my brain. doesn't work for me. Uh, I'm glad that it worked for Edgar Casey. doesn't work for me. But um, I wanted to know everything. And it seemed like a lot of the places where... There were things that I wanted to know were happening at conferences, but I couldn't get to the conferences. First of all, I had no way to fly across the country to be at the conference. And if I could, and if I had the money to do that, which would have taken robbing a bank, which I I don't do uh, yet, um, (laughs) but who was going to be with my kid while that was happening? And where was his progress going to go while I took three days to be at a conference, right? Um, It would have required my husband to stop working. And then, you know, would we have been able to pay the rent? So I couldn't get to the conferences back then. You guys can get to the conferences now because in 2021, they are virtual. They still cost money, although the cost of them has gone down exponentially um, in virtual. And we just did one conference, Dr. Grampichet and I, last week. Uh, That was the ASA um, Greater Phoenix Global Conference. Um, And we did a presentation called What Am I Missing? That's available on video if you decide to, I think you can still register and go to the conference a week late you know? Um, But there's another conference coming up uh, that we've been talking about a lot. The Taka conference is happening in October and you should register for tickets right now. If you can't afford it, ask for a scholarship. They have scholarships. Um, But, you know, if, if you don't have the time and you don't have the money even to go to a virtual conference, what we like to do here is to bring experts to you. So you've got a free place where you can ask questions, you can get to know them. But don't confuse me with one of the experts. I'm a mom. I'm a former teacher. I passionately care about helping you to get to the answers that you need. That doesn't mean that I have them, but it means that I would be willing to make some phone calls to find them and see if I can get a guest to come on and talk about them. That I can do and that we try to do. We've been trying to do that for over 10 years. 
10 years. My hair has gone white. <laughs> How long we've been doing it. But it, I love being here and I love all of you being here with us. But don't confuse me with one of the experts. Confuse me with somebody who cares deeply about what your part of this journey is and what you're trying to accomplish. Okay? Deal, you know what I always say. We do this together, right? We hold hands. Si se puede. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, We do like to start Thursdays with something we fondly refer to as the jargon of the day. This is when we take on one word, one phrase, one acronym. We try to figure out what in the hey, nani, nani, are those experts talking about? What does this have to do with us? Do we really need to learn this term? And, you know, all that. Uh, First, we give you the actual definition. Then we make fun of it because, you know, why not? And then we give you a working definition, which hopefully will help you. But don't please, instead of saying don't, uh, it's, it's hard to not do something. Let's do something else instead. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with yourself. If you don't get it the first time, join the club, right? That's how most of us were. But give yourself the opportunity to come back to it from time to time. Once you've experienced it, it helps you to have an understanding of what the term is. So don't be surprised. The goal of this is that you'll go, hmm, I don't know if I get that entirely. Um, But then, you know, two weeks later, you'll be doing something and something happens. You go, oh, that sounds familiar, I think. And then you hear it again and you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I know. That was that thing that I saw. And then you start to really get it. So be patient with yourself. Okay, so today's term is, you know, uh, uh, right out the gate, you're not going to love it. Deprivation. And I think we all have a basic understanding of deprivation, right? Don't we think, like, I immediately go to the person in the desert who's crawling through the desperate, de- desert, desperate for a drink of water. They're, you know, they're in deprivation. They haven't had any um, moisture and, and it, they're hurting, right? Um, so what has this got to do with autism? Surely we're not putting people in a desert with no water. And I want to be clear, we're not. And anybody who's talking about doing that, um, but there's a bigger term to deprivation. So let's take a look at what it actually means. Because, you know, sometimes we get a term and we think we know what it means. Let's take a look at it. And let's start with the complicated one, right? Uh, deprivation and establishing, op- op- uh, we should have a buzzer, Traven, so that at the point where it's like, lost me, uh, an establishing operation uh, that results in increasing the reinforcing value of a particular event or stimulus. Uh, and thus increases the frequency of behaviors relevant to those events as what? As consequences. For example, person is more likely to engage in behaviors that are previously resulted in access to those events or stimuli in the past. <laughs> what? I love these because it's like, how far did they have to walk to make this as difficult as possible so that you couldn't understand it? Um, let's take this like it's a piece of foil and crumple it all up and file it in the circular file. And let's move on to the working definition and see if we can't make heads nor tails of this deprivation when a child or an individual's access to something is withheld or restricted for a period of time, resulting in that thing seeming even more desirable to them, increasing the chance that the child or individual will engage in behaviors that have previously resulted in access to those things. All right, let's look at this again, because this is still, I can tell you that a BCBA gave me trouble about this and said I don't like it. 
and it, it made me put in more words. When a child or an individual's access to something is withheld or restricted for a period of time. So first of all, out the gate, what I want to make sure we're saying is that it's not withheld forever. That is not what we're talking about. We're saying that we're not giving and we're not teasing them with it. Something is withheld for, or restricted for a certain period of time. And that the result is that that thing seems more desirable to them. And what we're going for is the chance that the child will engage in behaviors that previously resulted in access to those things. Okay, let's tear it down, right down to the studs here. So <clears throat> we talked the other day about a preference assessment, excuse me, that we have to check in with people and go, what do you want? What are you working for? That we can do this with a baby. We put the stuffed toy the iPad and, you know, the sippy cup all in front of the baby. And we watch the baby crawl over to the stuffed toy and we go, yay. And we take the the stuffed toy and we, you know, we rub their face with it. And so they're like interaction, it's all good. And then we take the, the stuffed toy and the tablet and the sippy cup and we change them around and we make it fun. Like it's a game. And the baby's like, I don't really know what's happening, but she seems happy. And, and then we, we wait, we pause and we wait to see, does the baby crawl again over to the stuffed toy? Because then that starts to tell me there's a pattern. Even if the, if the toy's here the first time and the toy's there in the second time, the baby prefers right now in this slice of time, the baby prefers the stuffed toy because first it was over here and now it was over here and they're going to it no matter. So right now the baby wants to play with the toy. Great great, let's play with a toy, right? But keep in mind that, you know, later on this afternoon, the baby may have had enough of the toy. What happens a lot of the time is that we get full of a toy or full of a food or full of a treat. When, when you get a treat over and over and over again every day, it seems less of a treat right? So this is where deprivation comes in. We're artificially creating a state of deprivation by making the toy have more charisma. That's really what we're doing. Because if I get to play with Buzz Lightyear every single day, then I love my Buzz Lightyear and Buzz Lightyear is comforting, but he's not like this big treat for me. And sometimes when we're doing something that's hard and we want to give somebody a treat, we want to make sure that we've saved that thing up so that we didn't give it all the time. And if you think about this, this isn't just with babies or toddlers or teenagers. We, we do this as, as adults, right? You know, have you ever been on vacation where you've had access to everything that you want and everything that you need? And then, you know, you get to the point where you can't wait to go home and just have tomato soup, right? Because, <laughs> you you know, there are times when we're like, oh, I just want to eat in a restaurant. I'm so sick of cooking. I just want to eat in a restaurant. And then you eat in restaurants for seven days and you're like, I just want to go home and have grilled cheese and a tomato soup and something easy that I just make myself, right? That has low sodium in it, right? So because we get the other side of deprivation, which is satiated with something. So I just want to make sure that people don't think that we are hiding toys from children to be mean. No. 
No, 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 no. That's the wrong way to look at this. What we're doing is creating a circumstance where the child is going to be like, oh, I love that, right? And if we give it to them all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, then, then really they have nothing to get excited about. We all know children who are spoiled, right? And I hate that term because, um, but you know what I mean by spoiled, where there's a kiddo who says, I want this and their parents get it for them immediately, right? They don't have to work for it. They don't have to do anything. And, and it kind of loses its luster for them. Um, we know adults that are like that, right? When you've worked for something and you get it and you don't always get it, it's a special moment. So what that means as caregivers and therapists is that we're mindful. We do preference assessments, but we don't then, if, if we know that, so I can think of the little kid that, um, the kiddo that was really into Lion King and mom was like, oh, okay, but you know, I just have the one reinforcer. What am I going to do? And the therapy team was telling her, okay, well, first of all, what we have to do is find more Lion King things. So it's not just his Nala doll, that it's the book about Lion King and it's the video about Lion King and it's the coloring book that's about Lion King so that we have more reinforcers, right? That have to do with Lion King. And then maybe we go into just like a video about lions. So we're pulling it slowly away from lions because if we just, have the Nala doll and we pound, 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 and you're working for the Nala doll, you know, it's a, it's not going to be as fun for them. And they're going to be like, why would I work for the Nala doll? I already have the Nala doll. And we all work for reinforcers. And if you think about it, it is when we are all happiest. If everything gets handed to you, mm, not as much fun. When you get something that you haven't had in a while, isn't it more fun for you? Isn't that the truth? So we are artificially creating that. And it, and again, it's not a tease thing. If your child loves Buzz Lightyear, you, you don't get up and, and take the Buzz Lightyear doll and go, okay, I'm taking Buzz Lightyear and I'm putting him up on this shelf where you can't get him. Nani, nani, woo, woo. No, that would be the wrong thing. What we do is the child goes to bed and goes to sleep, right? And we take Buzz Lightyear and we put him in a room that he doesn't know and we do whatever throughout the day. And then it's like time for the thing that's really hard. And we go, oh, okay, you know, we show them an icon. We're going to, we're going to work for Buzz Lightyear. And we do, and the kid is like, oh, I want my Buzz Lightyear. And we do the thing and they get through it and they're happy and buzz, right? And they don't even know you took it and put it in the other room, Right. So that's how we create a state of deprivation. We make things special. We make them sparkly by not making them there all the time. And we do it cleverly and mindfully and not ever as a tease, not ever as a tease. Okay. And we never deprive children of food and liquids, not ever. All right. All right. I think we got that clear. All right, let's move on to our question of the day. Uh, what was the first thing that you did after quarantine? Which is kind of funny because we're still a little bit uh, in quarantine. And some people to different degrees. But um, some of us were even more quarantined than others. And my question for you is like, what was, or what is the first thing that you will do after your quarantine? Cause I don't want to assume. 
anyway, we were asking the question, what's the first thing that you did after quarantine or what's the first thing that you're going to do after quarantine? I don't know about all of you. We quarantined hard, really super hard. And we started quarantine before the quarantine and um, we did not go out at all. Uh, like crazy did not go out at all. <laughs> People were concerned for me. We live in, in a major city and we were able to have groceries delivered and I was able to work from home and my son was able to do his schoolwork from home and my husband was laid off from work. So, um, and that meant that first his employer paid him and then his employer, um, he got unemployment. Um, so we were able to do that. And I know that that's not everybody's story, but we, we took it very seriously. We were, um, my husband and I are both older. Um, we have immune issues. Everybody in our family has immune issues. We all, my husband and I had weight we had to lose and we lost a substantial amount of weight in COVID. We still have more to lose, but we, we lost like a fourth grader together uh, in terms of weight. Um, but you know, we, we were doing everything that we could to minimize the risk. Cause I don't know about the rest of you. I was so worried that something was going to happen to us and who was going to take care of our kid. You know, uh, that was, that was my big motivator the whole time. I was like, I do not want my, my child to be here in the house in the middle of a pandemic by himself. Um, so we took it super, super seriously. And, so the first thing that I did after I was fully vaccinated, the first real thing that I did was go to my son's high school graduation, um, which was kind of a ginormous thing um, and was very freaky to be out. Everybody had to be masked and it was outdoors. It was still freaky for me to be out and about. It was just bizarre. Um, but you want to talk about a reinforcer that we had been working for, for how many years? Um, and, uh, you know, because of my autoimmune issues, I was terrified in getting the vaccine. I was concerned about for me, what that was going to be. And I talked about it with my doctor, but that was the big reinforcer for me was that I was going to be able to attend my son's graduation and, hopefully, you know, not get sick and die from it, man. That was like pretty much every waking moment in the last year was like, how, how can that happen? Um, but what happened for you guys? What, what was the big deal for you? I will say it was a couple of weeks later before I went to a Trader Joe's, which was another big thing that the whole time that we were for the longest time, we could get delivery from so many other places, but you couldn't get delivery from Trader Joe's. And then people opened companies where you could contract so that they would deliver from Trader Joe's. And now it's no big deal. You can order from Trader Joe's. Um, but that was a big deal to me to go back into the store and be in a Trader Joe's. Uh, but what did you guys do? What's the big deal that you couldn't wait for after quarantine? All right. Uh, let's move on to our topic of the week. Cause I see that Bonnie has joined us. Very excited about that. Um, and our topic this week is understanding behavior. It's interesting that somebody wrote me a question yesterday about, um, you know, how to facilitate helping uh, a person on the spectrum moving in with them and to make it easier. And, and I, I wrote back and I said, you know, what a wonderful thing that you're thinking of that and asking questions about that. And, and I talked about communication and that communication is key, but here's the asterisk. 
that people on the autism spectrum communicate in different ways sometimes than you might uh, or I might. Uh, I mean, we all communicate in different ways, but we can't just assume when people say, uh, well, communication is really important that we that we're talking about talking talking it out, right? Um, It is important to understand that absolutely everything that someone does is communication. And this is what I mean about understanding behavior. If you, if I say something to you and you scrunch your eyebrows together, you didn't say to me, I don't understand, or I don't agree, or I don't, but you scrunched your eyebrows together. And so if I'm truly listening with all my senses, I saw that behavior, recognized it as communication. I'll say, do you have a question? Are you, you know, uh, is there something about that that doesn't ring true for you? Is there something you want to add to it, right? And I can further the conversation, right? Or I can scrunch my eyebrows back at you. And if you're listening, then, uh, you know, more communication can happen with just our eyebrows, that they they estimate that there's only I think it's seventeen percent of communication that happens in the world that's actually spoken. That the rest think about that. So that's eighty three percent of the communication that we do is not spoken, and I'm talking about in any community, not just the autism community. So when we look at behavior, a lot of times people get all twisted up in behavior and 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 go, well, that's the one I hear more often that makes me crazy is when people go, well, you know, they're just not respectful. Um, Cause I always, I'm like, mm, that's some real expectation about behavior. Let's look at the behavior. What is the behavior? And if we think about what is the behavior communicating for a lot of people, they'll default to, well, that, that was disrespect. But is that the case? I've heard this from dads who will say, well, my, my son on the spectrum, he just, he doesn't show me respect. And if if a four, a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old doesn't understand what respect is or understand what you mean by respect, you're not going to get it. Um, you got you to gotta look at the behavior and go, what is being communicated here? And am I communicating back in a way that is meaningful to this individual? So often we get it confused, right? That a behavior happens and we make an assumption about what it is and what it means without really understanding what is being communicated. So if you can just change one thing today, when you see a behavior that someone is doing, asking asking yourself the question, what's being communicated right now? What just What do I think that person is saying to me? If they could hold up a billboard and Instead of doing that behavior, what would it be? And then you can begin to understand because there's there's a there is communication. There's a need to communicate in everyone. It's just that some people are gonna some people are gonna do it differently than others, and that's not just the autism spectrum, right? Um, I learned as a school teacher that you know I don't have time. I'm teaching and I'm up talking. I don't have time, but I can throw Johnny a look and be like right? That says volumes to Johnny and it gets my need across, right? Teachers have all kinds of things. We point, we'll be talking about something else, but we'll be tapping a book, tapping a desk, right? That's all communication. So think about the people in your life that are behaving in a way that is, 
not your favorite thing and ask yourself, what do I think they're communicating right now? And how might I communicate back to that, to that, as opposed to all the things that I packed into it that I thought it might be? Yeah. All right. Uh, Having said that, it's time to move on because Bonnie is here. We have the amazing Bonnie Yates. She is a special education attorney with Tolner Law Offices. She is amazing. And I'm so lucky that I get to have her with us here on the show as a regular and also that I consider her a good friend. So Bonnie, how lucky am I? Bonnie, welcome. You're lucky because you're wearing really psychedelic blue purple. That's my favorite color. Ah, well, it must have been some Vulcan mind meld because this morning I was like, what am I going to wear? And I I was like, I got to wear this today. Yeah, no, you you nailed it. Um, (laughs) Hi, Shannon. Um, Hi, everybody. I'm glad to be here. Um, We have some interesting topics to cover today that um, hopefully will help you navigate uh, your child's uh, IEP. Um, I'm just to tell you that I'm here courtesy of Tolner Law Offices. We're a 12 attorney firm in San Jose, California. We offer free consultations to anybody in California. If you go to our website, you can find the paperwork for that. You can also reach me. My, my uh, email address is on the website. My phone number is 310-245-1968. Shannon and I started this, I don't know, oh, so many years ago, and the time has gone fast. And our idea was not that this would be a substitute for you meeting with an attorney to discuss your individual problem, which I would always encourage people to do. I would say generally in special education, you can talk to multiple attorneys because most of them do not charge for the initial consultation. They want to get to know you and see if they can help you. And you, you, you can learn a lot in those, in those situations. But, um, but we wanted to teach people about the IDEA because the IDEA, the Individuals uh, with Disabilities and Education Act, was supposed to be for parents to be able to access their child's rights under the IDEA. And everything went sideways and got very formal and very uh, statute and regulation heavy and very rule heavy. And now it's a, a practice increasingly of lawyers. So we're trying to take a little bit of that power back and, and give you some information so that when you go to that meeting, you won't feel so disempowered because you don't know whether what you're being told to told is, is truthful or not. So um, anyway, there's a lot of stuff going on. And when I peeked at LRP this morning, uh, Special Ed Connection, they had an interesting article on something that has bothered me, but I didn't really articulate um, how it was a violation. And you will have seen this in, in, in more than one context. Oftentimes at the initial IEP, the districts don't screen for occupational therapy needs until they have already had the first IP and established eligibility. And I guess they're thinking as well, if the student's not eligible, this saves us one assessment. But legally, that's not the correct way to handle the situation because um, they're supposed to assess in all areas of suspected disabilities. Now, the other place this has been coming up with some districts, and I think you, um, some of you will have probably had this um, discussion yourselves with your district. Parents come to the district and they ask for one-to-one ABA support from a trained ABA team. And the district says, oh, well, if you want to do that, the first thing we have to do is do, a, the some, some of them call it a SCIA 
which is a made up term, special circumstances, instructional aid. Some of them uh, assessment, it's an assessment to look at whether you need an instructional aid. And yes, you guessed it most of the time. Um, the assessment is just gonna buy the district 60 days. There, there's also um, LA Unified, if you ask for behavior services, they say the only, you know, you can't ask for that. We have to do a functional behavior assessment before we can even have that discussion. So anyway, I'm just minding my own business. And I looked at this article and I thought, this is good. Let's talk about it on the show. So make earnest efforts to fulfill IEP objectives. This is obviously the special education publication, um, the editors um, writing up this stuff for school district administrators. So even if staffing and resources are in short supply, districts should make earnest efforts to fully implement students' individualized education programs as required under the law. 34 CFR 300.323, CFR is the um, federal uh, regulations that implement the idea, uh, provides that a district must implement the IEP by providing as soon as possible special, special education and related services that accord with the student's IEP. Districts should not delay special education and related services nor acquiesce service delivery efforts by the IEP team to systemic practices, for example. In May, the Maine Department of Education found a systemic violation of state law and the IDEA by a district's practice of mandating social work assessments before adding counsel, counseling services to the student's IEP. In Lewiston, the state educational department determined that a student with emotional disturbance was delayed services for three months due to the practice and ordered compensatory counseling services. The state also required the district to clarify its policy regarding adding counseling to a student's IEP to reflect deference to the IEP team decision-making process. Um, so I was like, hey, that's cool. I just filed a case against LA Unified where that's exactly what they did. They said to the mom, no behavior services because you haven't had a functional behavior assessment. Then they did a, a functional behavior assessment that, that like blew my mind because this is what they did. The student was at that time engaged in distance learning at home. He was at home because even after the parents got a mask accommodation for him, the districts didn't want to deal with it. LA Unified people didn't want to deal with it. So they sent him home. That's another chapter of the same story, right? Because they thought that since his mom was from a low income community, that she was going to take her kid home. So anyway, the district policy is that they aren't doing any in-home assessment. So we had our student doing his synchronous synchronous learning at home, because as you know, LA Unified does have a virtual curriculum this year. And then on another screen, so he's, he's, he's looking at a screen, and then she's looking at him on another screen, evaluating his behavior. And I might add, evaluating, evaluating his behavior from kind of like the elbow crease up, right? Right? Because she can't see, she can't see what he's doing with the lower part of his body. I mean, if his behavior becomes extreme enough and he tries to elope, which was the whole function of the 
of the um, behavior or support plan, yeah, then she'll see that. But how does she figure out the antecedents if she can't even see his whole body? What if his mom, God bless her, put him in a pair of pants that have a really itchy tag and the tag is getting on his nerves and that's causing him to fidget and then act out. So anyway, my point is um, I filed for due process, but I don't like that I didn't know to articulate that it was illegal to require him to have to put his needs on hold and not look at them until the functional behavior assessment was complete. So that's uh, point one for the morning is they can't, they have to, as a team, when they get together, they're empowered to offer whatever the student needs and they can't wait on it. If they have compelling information that the student needs a service, they can't say, yeah, we just, you know, we're gonna send you an assessment plan. That'll take 15 days and you have 15 days to return it. So that's 30 days. And then we have 60 days to do the assessment and hold an IEP meeting. So that's 90 days. Um, you can really see the, the, the cost saving, right? Yeah. I, Bonnie, this is huge because I certainly have been through this with my son. I can remember when he was in kindergarten, they had, um, they identified that there was an issue that it was hard to get him to write, that he didn't, he didn't like writing time. He didn't want to do that. So they agreed to do a functional behavior assessment and I think it took the rest of the school year. I think it was first grade before they got around to coming up with, and then there were weeks upon weeks where they had meetings before they came up with the behavior intervention plan. Mm -hmm. We lost a year because mm -hmm. they ditched around, uh, which made yeah, me crazy. Well, and that's clearly illegal because they have to complete the assessment within 60 days. But I, I haven't even had a chance to, to like really debrief about this with a behaviorist because I just had to file. So I haven't had that conversation, but you know, think about the, it's like a, it's like there are multiple levels of um, potential limitation on how you can accurately view and, and collect the information. You just, you just can't see enough in that setting and really the only clue we had was it's, this was a student that was not able to access distance learning. So, I mean, they're seeing him at his worst in a certain sense, but they're also not getting a complete picture. And then this assessment is going to be used to make a decision about whether or not he needs one-to-one -one ABA support. So it's pretty fundamental. Well, that was issue one of the morning. Um, going back here, issue two was a little article called Use the Golden Thread Method to Draft Strong IEPs. So myself, what is a golden thread method? <laughs> that was my big question. <laughs> when did I miss learning about the golden thread method? Okay, well, here's what they have to say. The golden thread method is predicated on the idea that when you start with strong data collection, then that data collection carries you through the entire IEP. Well, then I was like, well, I definitely have to read this because my general impression is that IEPs are, are replete with references to how the classroom teacher or whatever support person will take data to find out if the, if the uh, goal is met for the year. 
But when you actually get around to asking for that data, if you do, you'll either get nothing or not much. And this is another issue that's been bothering me. And I've been feeling like I need more to say about it. So let's see what they have to say. I'm sure you all have had the experience with having them say they're collecting data and you get back one piece of paper with some columns and some smiley faces and said, you know, Brendan had a great day today. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> anyway. I, well, and what? just when you were saying what they had done to me was illegal, you know, part of it was that they, they had the, they did the assessment and they were taking the data and then they were interpreting the data and then they were writing the BIP. But what I got was a sheet of paper with hash marks on it. Uh -huh. that was, yeah, that was how the, yeah, the, the data arrived. But my thing has always been, Bonnie, is that I don't think that they train anybody on how to take data. Well, that might be why the data looks the way it does, Shannon. So yeah. here, here's some, some stuff for people to chew on. Okay. Insufficient data tends to be what parent attorneys really hone in on. So of course, cause you know, we're all insecure, right? Professionally insecure. I'm like, Man, am I doing am I doing enough honing homing in on this issue? You know, it tends to be the focus of a lot of due process hearings. Strong data collection is good practice in terms of writing a legally compliant IEP. It's also a proactive way to prepare yourself for the best possible situation if you do end up in a hearing. IEPs must contain a statement of the child's present levels of academic achievement and functional performance, including how the child's disability affects the child's involvement and progress in the general ed curriculum. This present level of academic achievement and functional performance essentially creates a baseline for designing an educational program and measuring future progress. And they cite a case from Bakersfield. Okay, so that's what we call the PLOPs, the present levels of performance. Those are something that should be discussed in the beginning of the IEP before you get to goal progress, okay? Is where is the student based, where's the student at now based on objective criteria? Um, strong data collection can also help IEP teams avoid pitfalls like writing goals that are not measurable or that are too aggressive, too ambitious, or not ambitious enough. Well, my cynical take on that is that a lot of the time, at least 75% of the time, 70% of the time, I feel as if they're purposely writing squishy goals so that they can measure them at the end of the reporting period. So if you don't, if you don't establish in the goal um, what it is that you want the student to do and how many prompts he needs and what kind of prompts and what's his percentage of accuracy and number of trials, it's gonna be a lot easier for for somebody to say in a year from now that the student meets the goals. And I really do believe that certain IP teams don't want to write measurable goals. But the way this article is written, you know, it's suggesting that districts do and they just don't know how to do it. And it's probably some of both. So just a couple more things about this. Though the law well, we've got some questions that are that are coming in too. Uh, that okay. if you have a second right. to say. Yeah. Okay. So which ones do you want me to answer? Well, do you want to finish your thought first and then and then we'll deal with questions? Because they're, they're uh, yeah, we just what we'll do is there's a third piece of this and we can do the third piece another time. Okay. 
Though the law doesn't require baseline data for every IEP goal, it can be very helpful. It helps you determine how aggressive you want the goal to be or how much progress you want to see in the coming year. It's difficult to do that if you don't have clear information about current performance levels. If you have good student-specific data, then you can write a strong present level statement. Um, use qualitative and quantitative information that reflects not only numerical data about student performance level, but also descriptive data about how it impacts a student's ability to access and make progress in the general education curriculum. Our goal for kids is to fill these holes in their skill sets that are hindering their ability to access general education program curriculum. Once you have strong present levels, it's very easy. It very easily directs discussion in terms of what you need goals and what they should be. It helps you set realistic performance criteria. Anyway, they go on to say that you need to really individualize goals. Quote, we tend to see almost every goal being written for 80% compliance by the end of the year. That's definitely true. Instead, make the goal more, more individualized by basing it on how the student is currently doing. Data will help you set current performance. Um, for example, if the student's present level suggests that this is an emerging skill for the student, then 80% after one year may be too ambitious a goal. Using present level data here can help school-based IEP team members explain to parents why they're only looking for 30% progress for the year. Depending on the individual student, 30% may be a lot of growth. Once you have measurable IEP goals, you're more likely to determine reasonable measurement criteria and more likely to get compliant progress reports. So they close by saying, close the loop on the golden thread with progress reports. It's, it's rare to see really strong progress reports, parentheses, it's rare to see them at all. And they're important not only because they're legally required, which they are, but also because they close the loop on the golden thread in that the data from progress reports will potentially become next year's present levels. If you've, at the end of an IP year, if you have strong progress reports, then you've pretty much compiled all the information you need to go into the next annual IEP meeting. And I would add and show that the district's offer was fake because the student is making progress according to the progress report. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, Deli D has written in and said, I withdrew my son from his school last month and the school has not yet provided a withdrawal, a withdrawal form, a withdrawal form. Okay. This uh, is that kind of concerns me. Well, this is one where, you know, where like the fire bell starts going off. Districts yeah. want you to withdraw your student and turn them into a privately placed student at your own expense. If that was what you were wanting to do, you would not be listening to this program. When you remove your child from school, you need to give the district written notice of the reasons why you're removing him. And you need to make it clear that you're removing him because the district has failed to offer a FAPE and you have to resort to your own unilateral measures to get him or her the education he needs and you are not withdrawing him and making him a privately placed student. Okay, that's really critical because once you've disenrolled him, without indicating that he's been removed because of a FAPE dispute, they aren't responsible for holding IEPs, conducting assessments. All they're responsible for is doing a service plan, which will give you, you know, five speech sessions a year or something. So I'm very concerned that you did this, and I think you need to 
circle back and explain to them why you removed him from school and that you still want him to be a student that has an IEP in your district. So let me ask you this. If you've done this, because you didn't watch the show and you talk about this all the time, 10 days, uh, business days, written notice, or 10 days, written notice. No, uh, 10 business days, you see, business. you're a good student. You got it right the first time. Never change your answer. Right? All right. All right. <laughs> uh, 10 business days, written notice. So, um, but a lot of people pull their, they get emotional, something happens, they pull their kid out. There you are. It's been 10 days since you pulled your child out. And, and you're like, uh, do you now have to take your child back to school for one day and then provide? No, I don't think you do. I think you just clarify that all along what you were doing was a removal for a denial of faith. Okay. You um, just have to push back against this. One of the school law firms started to like flock this really hard about a year ago and started telling districts to just send everybody letters saying, okay, now you're disenrolled. And, you know, we've never had it come to anything with our cases because we write back and say, you know, no, this isn't a correct statement of the client's position. Here's what actually happened. It's when you don't do that and months and months and months go by, there's no liability on the part of the district. And we all know that the way you're going to get the stuff you need is file for due process and settlement mediation. You You can't do that if the student is is not a resident of the district. Okay. So she should get an email to them today saying, uh, I've taken my child out of school because you're not meeting FAPE, F-A-P-E, and here's why. Yeah. And to the extent that I'm paying for private services, I'm going to seek reimbursement from you. Whole other sentence. Now, they also went on to ask if, uh, can an ABA therapist uh, provide info for an IEP? The law is very clear that you are entitled to attend and be accompanied by anybody that will assist you in securing your child's you know, IEP. That could be a, a, a support friend. It could, be, um, it could be a behaviorist. It could be a pediatrician. Anybody who has information that the IEP team should hear. I think the problem becomes um, if you have a a therapist, a a behavior technician that you want to provide information for the IEP, you need to make your um, ABA provider aware of that. And then often the thing that I see parents come up against, Bonnie, is that they want their BCBA or one of the technicians to be at the IEP or to write a report. And often the insurance will say they're not going to pay for it. Well, that's a different issue. But if you have somebody you want to bring, when you get the meeting notice, I think there's usually a place on the on the meeting notice form that you sign to indicate that you're bringing somebody. Right. But I just would say to caregivers, you might call your ABA provider and they'll say, oh, we don't do IEPs. That's because they're a lot of times what they're really saying is we can't bill for that. If you really want them to go, you can private pay for them to go and just bring that up to them. Sometimes they just don't bring it up because they hate it, having to charge you personally. I think it's aversive for them. So they just say they don't do them, but they will. Um, and and sometimes it is so worth it to pay uh, behaviorists to go with you for an hour to be there because it will make a difference in what you get in your IEP. I think it's even more effective when you take a lawyer or an advocate, um, but to have an expert along is not a bad thing in my opinion. Do you disagree? Never a bad thing. Never a bad thing. 
No, because the behavioral the behavioral people have a lot of information about the child that I don't necessarily have. Right. Okay. Uh, uh, Deli D also said um, that they're they pulled them out because they don't provide speech. And how am I paying ABA speech therapy and OT? Now I and am now paying. I'm paying ABA speech therapy and OT. So can you, can you let us know if you're in California or somewhere else? Yeah. Um, and while we're waiting to hear back, uh, Nethravati has written in and said, ma'am, my son's two and a half years old autism, uh, a child can be as normal child, please. I want to contact you. How can I, and how long does it take for a child to improve very slow or very fast? I don't know which one of us they're wanting, uh, to contact Bonnie. So let's give both of our contact information, tell people how they can contact you. Uh, okay, so I can be reached through the Tolner website. Um, I can also be reached um, via email, byates at tolnerlawoffices.com. My phone number is 310-245-1968. For the, the lady in Florida, I direct you to COPA, uh, Council of Parent Advocates and Attorneys, C-O-P-A-A dot net. I think you need to talk to a Florida attorney about what's going on with your case. It sounds It sounds bad to me doesn't sound like yeah. they're doing the right thing. Yeah. And, you know, I think we all hope and dream that things will just work out. Um, but often what happens is that um, it works out for the school district because we wait for things to work out and they don't have to pay for what they should have to pay for for our child. So I'm with Bonnie. Get yourself the help that you need. For the other person, if you need to get a hold of me, my email is s.penrod at autism-live.com. You can also always reach us if it's easier to remember, you can write to autismlive at gmail.com. Autismlive at gmail.com is a great place um, for you to write to us at. Uh, Okay, so Bonnie, we're pretty much out of time here. Yeah, that's fine. I'll save the last piece of business for next week. I'll just tell you what it is. Um, it has to do with, um, how you establish present levels of academic achievement and functional performance. So this is keying off the the earlier two topics since the, the, the functional levels of, of academic performance and the present levels of performance are really important if you're going to write good goals. And a lot of the time, what I see in the, in the baselines, which are the present levels, I see stuff like, you know, Johnny has trouble at lunchtime. He often won't eat his sandwich or something, you know, and that's not, that's not a quantified baseline that will allow you to develop a goal that's measurable. And so um, we're going to talk more about how you can help the school district in your IEP meetings develop meaningful present levels of performance. And we'll save that for next week. And if people want to send in questions between next, between now and next week, we'll answer them on the air. And I'm just going to tell you all, I'm really surprised we're not getting more questions about masking, distance learning, emergency plans, retention, independent study, what's not going right at school. Me too, Bonnie. I think part of it, I'm, my guess is that parents are so fried and so excited that their kids are back in school that they're 
they're saying, I'm just going to see if it works out. I, I'm going to guess that in October is when it's all going to start hitting the fan and parents are going to go, this isn't working. Um, but it's been good for them to get the break. I think the caregivers needed the break. Yeah. Um, but but soon I think they're going to say that the, the school is not beneficial. Deli D just said, the school said that my son does not need speech, but his uh, neurologist recommends speech OT. Okay, I say, I say based on everything you've told me, you need to talk to a Florida lawyer now. Yeah, because uh, schools are going to say that, but if, if your child has a diagnosis of autism, I, I think the, the case can be made that they need speech. Sometimes schools will just say, oh, well, your child can speak, so they don't need speech, and there's so much more to speech than that. Yeah, uh, most kids on the spectrum, not on the spectrum, could use good speech. So uh, it's well, hard certainly to on the spectrum. My working assumption for a child that has an autism diagnosis is that his IEP services are going to include individual speech, individual occupational therapy, and perhaps when he has more skills, group OT and group speech. But he shouldn't have an IEP without those things. I I think it's just not likely yeah. that he doesn't need speech. Anyway. <laughs> And the funny thing is that that was always sort of like, you know, baseline. And then suddenly when speech got hard to deliver in COVID, now suddenly all these kids don't need speech, according to the school district. Yeah. Um, anyway, Tolner Law Offices, tell us how we can reach you there, Bonnie. Uh, go to the website and fill in a new, a new, what is it called? There's some kind of form you fill in if you want a free, free consultation. So do okay. that. Do that if you if you live in California. Uh, I have to go. I have another thing to do now. Thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in. Give us your questions for next week. And when we come back, we'll be talking about plops. Thank you, Bonnie. <laughs> Present levels of performance. Thank you, Shannon. All right. Bye-bye. everybody. Take and care. I've just got one quick announcement here at the end of the show. During the show, we got uh, an email letting us know that Nickelodeon is doing an open call for performers with um, who identify as having a disability, which autism counts as that. I know you might have an emotion about that, but they're counting it. Um, so they're doing an open call. You can go to nickonlineopencall.nick.com. They are specifying that they want uh, people who are 18 years old or younger all talent that identifies as disabled is encouraged to submit. Um, they want for you to, and they list all the different things here. You can be using assistive technology or not. We're looking for funny kids with great confidence, fun personalities, and lots of energy. If your kid can sing, dance, rap, and or play instruments, we want to see those talents too. Uh, they are committed to diverse, inclusive casting. Every uh, For every role, please submit qualified performers Without regard to disability, they want you to make a video. Um, there are instructions. It's too long for me to go through the whole thing. So go to nickonlineopencall.nick.com. They're very specific taping instructions. It is due um, by October 15th. So you've got a couple of days to do that. But if you have a kiddo or if you are under the age of 18 and you are talented and want to audition for Nickelodeon, what an opportunity. We've been told that this was coming, that uh, all of the studios were, were going to be very proactive in their um, casting and that there were going to be some open calls. So look, there, there it begins, Nickelodeon. Um, if you know somebody, share that information with them. Hey, we're back tomorrow with a very important show. Let's talk autism with Shannon and Nancy. 
And we've got a great guest. Uh, Karen Nolte is going to be with us talking about the Gemma Project. It's something that you're going to want to know about. It's a new research project. And um, I think that you guys are going to be really super interested in it. So be here tomorrow for that. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now.